Welcome to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, where we explore perceptions. How self-reflecting questions can give you a better understanding of self. I'm your host, Sonia Iris Lozada. Stay tuned. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Poetic Resurrection. Today, I'm very excited to talk to Phyllis Levitt, psychotherapist for over 30 years and currently writing her new book, America in Therapy. Welcome, Phyllis. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's really a pleasure. I am so interested in this book, America and Therapy, because you've been a psychotherapist for so long, 30 years. And now you're taking it from the individual to a whole. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the inspiration from this book came from so many years of practice and a lot of years of therapy of my own and really beginning to realize. And, and, and let me say, I worked with lots of individuals, children, couples, and families. And I began to get a really good education myself in family dynamics. And, you know, what brings a lot of people to therapy is pain. Something's not working in their life and they want some kind of healing. And the way the world of psychotherapy has evolved, we've come to understand that we're not islands. We don't just um, develop healthfully or unhealthfully in our mental and emotional well-being or not. In isolation, we are very much conditioned by the family systems that we grow up in. And originally, we kind of looked at the family of origin, mother, father, children, which is the you know the usual family um, configuration, although there are variations on that theme. But then the whole idea of family therapy, and we began to look at the bigger family systems as well as the family of origin. So there's the conditioning elements of the family of origin, and there's the community, there's the school, there's sometimes um, the emotional climate, beliefs, coping mechanisms that we learn in our places of worship, in business, and today, very profoundly from the media and from what's going on in our government. So the whole idea of my book is, is really to look at how the family systems in America are affecting us as individuals and how our development as individuals with the conditioning that we have is affecting the family of America. And very specifically, um, what I'm looking at is, you know, I, I worked in my, um, in my, my graduate program, I did an internship in a sexual abuse treatment program. And then I became a co-director of that program. And so I got a lot of um, up close and personal experience with abuse dynamics. And I don't know if the average person knows, but there is an epidemic of abuse in our country. I believe it. You know, the average person, and I'm saying, you know, not like a highly disturbed population are the people that I've worked with over the many years of my practice. And the level of abuse that people have suffered in their homes behind closed doors, um, sometimes in schools, sometimes in religious institutions, but so often at home is astounding. And the amount of suffering that people carry 
often without any access to any help until they might be fortunate enough later in life to be able to seek therapy, is really profound. And it has lasting effects on people. So what I look at in my book is both the individual family and what abuse dynamics look like and the effects they have on people if the abuse is not stopped and there's no treatment available. And I'm using that as a lens to look at some of the policies and practices of our largest institutions, government, and political leaders in this country. Because what I'm seeing is very much abuse dynamics coming down from the top in many instances in our country, as well as coming up from the bottom. And this is cause for great alarm in terms of the whole mental well-being of how we function as a nation and not just individuals. Yeah. And I totally understand that because I didn't have abuse in my family. I'm grateful for that. Yeah. I have heard about other people. I have seen a woman used to live upstairs from us. Her husband would beat her up even when she was pregnant Mm. and she kept having kids with him. And I, I remember as a little kid looking at her and saying, why, why I didn't understand it. I was maybe 10 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And then she asked me, why are you looking at me? It's like she was ashamed that I looked at her. But that was, you know, as a little kid, you grow up and you see things like that. And you just wonder, I had a a next door neighbor that they were, quote unquote, so religious and -hmm. they would beat their children. They thought they could beat them into religion, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. It was it's difficult. And then also. In this abuse that you're finding, is it also encompass all kinds of abuse, like physical and sexual and all of that? All of it, mental, emotional, physical, sexual, because the dynamics are the same. And part of the dynamics are, one of the big factors in abuse is that someone has power over other people. Mm-hmm. They have the power to make them obey, comply, be silent, not tell anyone, um, not resist. And so you have that in an individual family, often with parents who have power over their children or their spouses. And you certainly have that at the highest levels of government that have power over millions of people, power to affect their access to resources or health care or good housing or education or justice. So we have really to look at what's happening from the top down. And what and what I want I want to go back to something that you said when you were talking about your neighbors, because mm-hmm. so many people sort of have the question, if you don't really understand how abuse works and what the after effects are, so many people think, well, if if that happened to you, why wouldn't you protect somebody from harm if you know how bad it feels? Or why would you do that to someone? if you know how bad it feels. But it doesn't work that way. I mean, there are people certainly who don't abuse anyone who come out of abusive situations without any doubt. But the big two things that I find, and this is why I feel so alarmed for America today, with so much abuse happening from the top down as well as from the bottom up, mm-hmm. is because the two most common outcomes of abuse without any intervention and help, are that we learn to be passive and really helpless in the face of abuse. Mm -hmm. If you've been overpowered and you've been hurt worse, if you try to resist or tell anyone, 
there may be very well a part of you that has given up. And so even when abuse happens when you're older, that given up part of you doesn't resist because it never learned how and it never learned that it was effective. And so you have a whole segment of the population, growing segment of the population that has no power to resist um, any abuse of policies, practices, whether it's in their home or in the country at large. And they go along because they really don't believe they have power because they haven't had any power. And it's also true with the abuse coming down from the top, whether a lot of economic abuse, a lot of poverty, mm-hmm. a lot of racial discrimination in particular, and um, sexual discrimination and gender bias, is that people actually don't have any power. They don't know where to find it. And so they have given up. And so you see this in individual families and you see it happening in our country where people, things are happening that are actually not in their self in their best interest for their survival, and they're not rising up to do anything about it because they don't believe they can. I see a few of them that do fight, and then you hear about it for a little while, and yeah. then it it goes away. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, I don't understand why people, why can't people all have human rights? I don't get that. Yeah. I don't get that. To me, you are who you are as an individual. Like I could judge, and I hate to say the word judge, but you, everybody does it. And I can be judgy against someone that is bigot. I I just can't understand the hate to somebody. And a lot of it doesn't even come from an experience. It comes from being taught. Absolutely. And that is an experience. If that's your conditioning, that's actually an experience. If your family tells you that a certain population is inferior and doesn't deserve justice, and you don't have access to any other information or input or values or beliefs, you're very likely to believe that. So yeah, I mean, that's, and that's a kind of, I would call that a kind of mental emotional abuse, where you're taught to hate that that is so so what i'm looking at and how i i term this is that what we're really suffering from in our country is a severe impairment of our collective mental health because mentally healthy people don't abuse others no. they don't withhold food or medication or resources um or good housing from other people you know um healthy parents don't starve one child and feed another. They don't send one kid to college and make the other one go to work when they're 12. But we do that as a country. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have to start looking at the dynamics in our country through the lens of what makes a healthy family. What are healthy psychological conditions that produce people who are peaceful, who are loving, who are cooperative, and who are willing to settle conflict without violence. And that's one of the big ones. Yeah. So I just want to say the other side. Um, so you have a whole population of people who become helpless mm-hmm. and passive and numbed out or hopeless. And then on the other side, you have just as many people who come from abuse and neglect who have identified with the aggressor. And it's like, they're going to do anything in the world not to be a victim And so they tend to identify with very aggressive behaviors because that feels like power. Mm -hmm. And those people are more prone to either become abusers themselves 
or support abusive people. And you see that, you see that even on the playground, that the bully, Mm -hmm. the bully is a hurting kid, not a bad kid. It's a hurting kid. He's that child is expressing their pain by acting out on other children. And often disempowered other children will gather around them to feel that power. And these are dysfunctional ways to feel power. And if you think about if there's no intervention in whatever is causing that child to be a bully, however, they've been either bullied at home or hurt at home or neglected or left out or sexually abused or emotionally abused or physically abused, something's going on that a child becomes a bully on the playground. If there's no help and they grow up and there's still no help, who do they become in our society? Bullies to everybody. And what happens when they run for office? And that's the that's the ma- macrocosm of the microcosm that I'm looking for. And are there people who don't go in either direction, who come from really rough backgrounds? Yes, of course there are. There are people who have miraculous stories of having survived terrible odds, horrible conditions in their home, terrible treatment, awful messages about who they are, and they just somehow rise out of the ashes. And thank God, because the human spirit is resilient. But I think what we have to know as a country is that there are thousands and millions of people who do not rise from the ashes. Well, it's easier to give up than it is to fight. Absolutely. And especially if, you know, if peaceful demonstrators are tear gassed and assaulted by the police or the military or labeled as thugs and looters when they're actually demonstrating their constitutional right to peaceful assembly. Mm -hmm. So we have institutional, um, institutional practices that are just exactly what abusers do. Abusers silence their victims. They don't want their child to tell the school counselor what's going on at home. No, exactly. Right. So they make sure with threats or further violence that the the abuse stays secret or it stays unaddressed. And abusive governments and abusive institutions do the same things. And one of the other big, um, and I'll say one more thing, and then I, I want to shift gears a little bit. Okay. Um, one of the other big uh, keynotes of, a, of an abuser and an abusive family is that they blame their victims for their symptoms. Well, I beat him because he didn't do his homework. Or, you know, there's always a a justification for abuse. And what we know in the world of psychology is there's no justification for harming another human being. And there are peaceful ways and constructive ways to settle disagreement, conflict, and the other problems that arise in any family system, whether large or small. Sort of half of my book is about the diagnosis. This is what we're looking at in our country. And the reason why it's so important today, and I I can't stress this enough, is that, you know, on the farthest end of abuse, unaddressed abuse that becomes a reenactment of violence, you have murder and suicide and rape and torture and and the extremes of exploitation. And we see the same thing happening in our government. And we have now we are armed with nuclear weapons that we still talk about using. 
that could destroy life on earth as we know it. And that is a sign of mental illness. It's not a political issue. It's not a moral issue. It's not a religious issue. It's not an ideological issue. It's a mental health issue because mentally healthy people do not kill one another. And I totally agree with that. I have seen, I grew up in a tough neighborhood in Chicago. Uh-huh. Yeah. I didn't receive abuse from my family. Now, outside my house, it was yeah. different. Yeah. There were, you know, you saw so much. I am the firstborn okay. child that didn't grow up in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rican oh, is my okay. heritage. Uh-huh. And so my first two years of school, the teachers were extremely abusive because even though I was born and raised in Chicago, I understood what they were saying, but I couldn't answer because oh. I didn't know how to speak English. Wow. And it wasn't until my second grade that I, and I still remember, I can't remember my college professors. I can't remember my high school, but I remember my second grade teacher, Mrs. Myers. Mm-hmm. At that time, they did not have English as a second language. They okay. had speech classes. So they sent me there. And she was the first one that believed in me. Wow. Yeah. So there's that kind of abuse, you know, and kids fighting in the playground. And it was acceptable to fight in the playground. Yes. And I think we've come to this place in our history as as a human race, not just as a country, where we really have to know that it's not acceptable because it's potentially lethal to all of us. If for no other reason, if we weren't even looking at the harm we do to others. It's potentially lethal to us all. And that that is really frightening. I have children. I have grandchildren. I want to see my grandchildren grow up in a world that welcomes all children, that wants to take care of all children, um, and that values human life. And I'm not alone in that. I know that there are millions of people out there like me who really care about what world our children inherit, and if it's even habitable as as a as a planet. Um, but I do want to just switch gears real quickly to say sure. that the, other, the whole other half of my book is about what psychotherapy and psychology have to offer. So part of it's the diagnosis. Let's look in the face of what's really wrong, what's really not working for people, just like we do when people come to therapy. We have to name what's not working. And sometimes we have to say that's abuse. That needs to stop. But we also offer so many things that are of help. And in the world of psychotherapy, we see people get better. We see people heal. And I can't go into all of the factors that make that up today, but I'd like to name a few that I think we could really look at as a country. And I would love to see in practice on a national level. And one of them is, is that psycho, good psychotherapy provides a safe place for people to talk about their truth and what's really happening and the extent of their pain and their differences. And so I'll, I'll take, for example, like a couple, mm-hmm. um, because we're talking about, you know, couples come to therapy when they're fighting or when they're distant or when they've lost connection um, or when they've betrayed each other and hurt each other in some ways, and but they still want to repair the relationship. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we do is make it safe for both people to state their pain, their differences of opinion, what they want that might be different from each other. We make it safe for people to talk 
And we help people learn the skills of good listening, which is very simple, but very hard to do. It's simply this. We help people listen to one another the way we all want to be heard. We want to be validated. We want somebody to take our opinion, our needs, our point of view seriously, even if they disagree. And that's what they want from us. So if somebody has to be willing to give that, and in the best case scenario, both people learn how to give that. And we really help people express their pain and what and their needs to one another without blame, without you, 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 you're terrible, you did this, you did that. You can say, I'm upset with you because you don't ever come home when you say you're going to come home and I have dinner waiting for two hours. Or I can say, I'm really hurt because you had an affair. You can say how you what you feel about the other person's behavior, but it's in the context of this is how I feel, this is how I see what you did, and this is what I want from you. So, And then both people get to do that. And when you create a space of safety like that, and people are actually willing to engage They start to let down their aggressive, defensive posture because they're starting to get heard. And we all want that so desperately. I mean, I can't stress it enough because if you, you know, if you know people when they're fighting, neither one feels heard. They're just screaming at each other and they're (laughs) expecting the other person to hear their scream while they're not listening to the cry inside the other person's um, voice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how I imagine that for America is that we would actually have mediators in Congress, people that were part of the government that would be respected and valued and honored in a role of helping mediate disagreement in Congress, helping people actually listen to each other and not verbally assault each other or walk out or filibuster so that they can't be heard. Or, you know, that there's actually like, a mechanism in the government to do for opposing parties and opposing views what we do for individuals that we know helps, that we know works, that we know brings people back together. And this brings up a really important point. And like I have 20 important points, so I can't (laughs) tell you them all. But the really important point is that and I I mentioned it, and now I'm going to highlight it. When people come to therapy because they're not getting along, they come because they want to get out of the struggle. They want to repair the relationship, and they want to reconnect and come back to some feeling of love and cooperation and connection with one another and, and safety. I don't know that that's the agenda in our country. I don't know that the agenda is actually for repair. I don't think so. I don't either. There's too many egos. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that we face, that it's more about which side is going to win. Who's going to win? Who's going to beat the other person at the game? Who's going to have the most votes to get their whatever um, policy enacted? And it's really about that kind of competition rather than cooperation for the good of the country for the good of everyone in the country, just like you hope that parents are going to come together for the good of the family, not just the good of themselves, but the good of the family, the good of their children, the good of everybody. 
And I think that's the big contribution, one of the very big contributions that the lens of family therapy gives us around our country, that we're not even at the place of looking for repair. And you have to want it. And and what I hope, and going back to something I said earlier, is what brings people to therapy is pain. Something is not working and it's so uncomfortable. It's so painful. It's so, you know, out of the realm of what they want in their life that they're willing to do something new. They're willing to get new input. They're willing to try different behaviors or heal some wound in themselves that's unconsciously keeps replaying. Okay. And so you, we have to ask ourselves how many children have to die to use the recent news. How many children have to be shot in their classrooms before we feel enough pain to do something different? Yes, controlling assault weapons and the sale of guns. If a child had a gun in their hand, you would take it out of their hand. If they were carrying a knife and running around the house after their siblings, the first thing you would do would be take the knife out of their hands. Mm -hmm. But that would just be the first thing you would do. It would be an important thing to do, just like doing something about the gun laws and limiting the supply of assault weapons and accessibility and all of that is taking the the guns out of as many hands that are dangerous as possible, knowing that we can't do that perfectly. But then we would have to look at what's going on with that child, that they're running around the house with a knife after their siblings. What's, what's going on with that child that they feel that level of aggression? or that they've been allowed to be that out of control, or that they're hurting so much that they want to hurt somebody else. And so we have to look at ourselves that way. It's not just uh, it's not just gun control, which is, I think, you know, critically important, but what's going on in America that so many people want to kill each other and want to even kill people they don't even know? Yeah, this is a sign of severe mental illness in our country, and it's growing. It is. So let's let the alarm go off and bring ourselves to therapy. Let's bring opposing parties into a situation where they listen to each other deeply with the desire to heal, with the desire for repair. I think what I would just really like to say is, Uh, My book isn't published yet, but as soon as it comes out, I hope everyone will buy it because I feel like it has so much help for us that, and I've written it in a way that is not academic. It's totally readable and accessible to, you don't have to have any education in psychology to understand what I'm talking about. But what I really want to emphasize is that I've just talked about the very tip of the iceberg of all that the skills and the learning of psychotherapy have to offer about how to heal what's going on in our country. And that's the important part, that as bad as it may look on any given day, there is hope if we use the tools that we already know work for individuals. They can be applied to a country, they can be applied to an organization, they can be applied to um, any grouping of people. But I'm specifically looking at the very top, how our government runs, because it has such a massive effect on so many people. This has been so interesting because, I mean, I started Poetic Resurrection because I felt like Mm -hmm. we needed a place that was safe 
to talk. Yeah, and exactly. Listen. Yeah, exactly. And bless you for doing that. And, you know, I think podcasts are growing because people are looking for places to have voices of sanity in this culture and to support one another. And so fantastic that you're doing that. Is there anything that you would like to address with the audience and also a link or somewhere that they can reach you? Yeah, you can definitely re reach me on my website. It's www.phyllislevitt.com. And I have a, I'd love for you to sign in on my little um, contact me page. Um, if you put in your address, I your email address, I will send you a newsletter and I'll keep you updated about when my book will actually be published and available. So that would be the best way to reach me. And really, um, for my for for your listening audience and for anyone out there who cares about and I know there's millions of us who do really care about the future of our country and the future welfare of all our children please look for my book and just you know start googling mental health and if you have your own issues that you really want to resolve there's help out there and the more help we each get the more help we can each be Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Phyllis. I have learned so much from you today, and I'm honored to have you as a guest. Thank you so much for having me. It's been just an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, available on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, and many other podcast platforms. Please visit us and subscribe to our newsletter at PoeticResurrection.com for the latest information and updates.